of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, uh, we give you thanks. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds, Lord, and into the gathered worship of your bride this morning. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far, Lord, through song, through confession of, of sin and confession of faith together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring it, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the ministry and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the remainder of our service this morning, Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed and taught, Lord, as we come to the table together to make thanks for what Christ has done, as we continue to sing and to pray together, Lord, we pray, God, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This, this particular scene of Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, particularly that verse, is the exact midpoint of the Gospel of Mark. Now, we're in Matthew's Gospel, right? We're not in Mark's Gospel. So the only reason I bring that up is, one, because it's an interesting fact. But two, today, interestingly, is the exact midpoint of the season of ordinary time which I find fascinating because I think it adds a rather interesting layer to our consideration of this scene from Matthew's Gospel. Because you see, like, just like the disciples, since Pentecost, we too have been wrestling with these awe-inspiring miracles and teachings of Christ through the Gospel of Matthew. And now, just like the disciples, we are at a crossroads. We're right in the middle of ordinary time. We're at a we're at a crossroads, and we are forced to reckon with exactly who Jesus is. Who is this man that not only heals the sick and raises the dead and casts out demons, not even in person sometimes, but from afar? But who is also this man that walks on water and who is able to multiply a meager meal to feed thousands? Who is Jesus? So I don't think it's an accident that this text falls right in the center of ordinary time in this season because before we can return to the celebrations of Advent and Christmas, before we can 
join Christ and fast with him in the wilderness of Lent. And before we can shout again as a church with joy that he is risen indeed, we must settle what we believe about Jesus of Nazareth. Is he the Christ, the son of the living God? Or is he simply one of the prophets? Is he another forerunner? This is a question that each and every human being on the planet is forced to reckon with when they are presented with the gospel. Who is Jesus? And so to begin, I want to consider just these first three verses very quickly in this initial question and response from Jesus and then to the disciples. And so before we do that, though, I do want to at the very least understand and set some context. We need to think about where this conversation actually takes place. We see here in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, this again is Jesus retreating with the disciples like we saw last week when he retreats with them to the, to the region of Tyre and Sidon on the coast. Today, Caesarea Philippi goes by a different name. It still exists, but it goes by a different name. It goes by the name Benias. And it's located at the foot of Mount Hermon. So if you were to look in the back of your Bibles at a map or if you have a device, if you were to Google a map of Palestine area, you would see Mount Hermon is in the north. But it also is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have an even harder time finding Mount Hermon, find the Dead Sea, go north a little bit, find the Little Sea, and then go north of that about 25 miles. The reason this is important is that similar to last week, this is a Gentile region. Caesarea Philippi was a Gentile city dedicated to, the, to Caesar, hence its name, Caesarea, Caesarea. But it was also a location that was primarily devoted, because it's Gentile, to the worship of the Greek god Pan. Pan was the god of shepherds. I find this fascinating considering what happens in this, in this scene. Pan was the god of shepherds, of flocks, of wildlife, and also strangely of music, as some of these gods were. But in this Gentile city, this pagan city, Jesus then turns to the twelve. He retreats with them to a Gentile region, and he turns to them and he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This scene exists in three of the, all three of the Synoptic Gospels. But Matthew is the only one where Jesus refers to himself in this scene as the Son of Man. Both Mark and Luke simply record him asking them, who do people say that I am? Again, this is not by accident. Things in Scripture don't happen by accident. Matthew's use of this term, son of man, points us to a very intentional high Christology that happens in this passage. Because it's only after Jesus refers to himself with this messianic title of son of man that he then returns to a personal pronoun of I. Our Eastern Orthodox friends note here, and they say this, they say, Christ allows the disciples to draw out all erroneous opinions about himself. And he does this to identify these incorrect ideas because a person is better prepared to, vo to avoid false ideas about Christ when those false ideas are clearly identified. So in a city where pagans praise Caesar as a god, where they praise Pan as a god of flocks, like a shepherd, Peter issues the boldest confession of Jesus that takes place within the Gospels prior to his resurrection. And it's not hard to see parallels of our own time and our own era where worship of humanity and sex and the climate itself 
are simply fresh faces of an ancient paganism. And so how does Jesus answer the disciples? They say, or excuse me, how do how the disciples answer Jesus' question? And they say, well, okay. People, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, and some others just say you're just one of the prophets. All of these answers are really interesting, but they, but they speak volumes. So Herod Antipas, who rules Galilee at the time, considered Jesus to be John the Baptist resurrected. Now, for Herod, this had to be a nightmare situation because Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Right? So he's come back, and he's come back with a vengeance. Right? This, this is probably what's going through Herod's mind. But based upon this particular response from the disciples, we can assume that this rumor that John the Baptist had been resurrected and that he's now going by Jesus of Nazareth, we can assume that this rumor had, some, had become somewhat widespread. Right? People had believed it. Others thought Jesus to be Elijah possibly having in mind the forerunner prophesied in Malachi 3 and 4, which is slightly ironic considering that others thought that he was John the Baptist, and he was the forerunner prophesied of Malachi 3 and 4. Right? Jeremiah, this answer is also quite interesting. Jeremiah is known uh, as the prophet of weeping, but he's also known as a prophet of doom or a prophet of judgment. And so Jesus is often proclaiming in his ministry very similar judgments over the nation. So we could see why some might assume that Jesus might be Jeremiah, either returned or a new Jeremiah. And then this final one, this reference to one of the prophets, shows us exactly how the coming Messiah was very intentionally linked to the prophetic age. So some expected a long series of multiple prophetic forerunners before the Christ would show up. So they might have seen both John and his cousin, excuse me, Jesus and his cousin John, as forerunners to an eventual Messiah who was coming. But notice, out of all four of these answers, not one of them openly considers Jesus to actually be the Messiah. And so it's only at this point, they give him his answers, and it's only at this point that Jesus then says, okay, who do you think that I am? Our Orthodox friends, again, they proclaim here something interesting. They say, this is absolutely the greatest question that any of us can ever face. Because it is the question that defines Christianity. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to you this morning? And thankfully, we're not left to guess the right answer because Peter, as Peter is wont to do, can never keep his mouth shut for very long. And so Peter boldly claims... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here again, that high Christology is drugged back to the front and center. We've seen Jeremiah and one of the prophets, and maybe John resurrected. No, you are the Christ. So for Simon and the other disciples, Jesus is more than a mere forerunner. He's more than a prophet. He is the long-expected Messiah. So again, who is Jesus to us this morning? To the disciples, he is Christ, the Son of the living God. But as we know, because we've just read it, and most of us in here looking around the room are very biblically literate and somewhat historically literate when it comes to the history of the faith. It's at this point, starting in verse 17, that the rest of our passage gets a bit controversial throughout the history of Christendom. 
And if Matthew had just simply left well enough alone, like Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke don't include this. So if he would have just said, you know what, this is good enough, right? Then this wouldn't be a problem at all. But as it is, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this, and the Lord Jesus responds. He brings to Matthew's attention once again. Jesus actually responds here. I've read Mark's account. Jesus actually said something after Peter confesses him as the Christ. So let's see how Jesus responds. And he says, well, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is where we're going to spend the rest and the chunk of our time in this passage today, because it's important. So I want to note from the outset, just particularly building out of verse 17, that Peter's confession here is not a mere human idea. Jesus tells him directly, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Rather, Jesus proclaims to him, he says, it is God the Father and God the Father only who has given you this insight, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter's confession is not natural, it's supernatural. This is a supernatural confession. In Matthew 11, where we were at just a few weeks ago, Jesus detailed for us very specifically, he said, no one knows the Son except the Father. And here, the Father graciously reveals the identity of the Son to Simon, just as he continues to do to each and every one of us who call upon the name of the Lord today. If you believe in Christ, you know and believe in Christ because the Father has revealed him to you. And it's the supernatural confession. The supernatural confession prevents the Christian faith from being only a philosophical system. And it prevents it from being just one path of spirituality among many. Peter's confession excludes all compromise with every other religious system. It is Jesus who is the Christ no one else. It is Jesus who is the Son of the living God, no one else. And this knowledge cannot be achieved by human reason. It cannot be achieved by human wisdom. It cannot be achieved by logically working it out. It can only be achieved by divine revelation from God himself. Again, Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The revelation of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a supernatural revelation. And each and every one of us who confess Christ, we confess a supernatural confession when we proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So then, that's not even the controversial part of this passage, right? We like that part. That's great. So then, let's ask this question. Because Simon's confession is supernatural only because the father has revealed it to him then is peter or is peter's confession the rock upon which jesus refers to in verse 18 listen again to what jesus says he says blessed are you simon barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven that's great. We're good there. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. 
the answers to whether or not this is Peter or Peter's confession have varied throughout the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Even the fathers themselves, who for the most part are somewhat uniform on a lot of things, are all over the board with this. But interestingly, and this is what I found fascinating, interestingly, so are quite a few Protestant theologians and pastors on this. They are all over the board. And it's always an either-or situation. Now, for regular Christ community folks, you guys know very well, I do not like either-or situations. It doesn't have to be choice A or choice B. I like to cause problems when it comes to these types of black and white answers. I like to, as some would say, stir the pot or stick a, put a stick in the spoke of the bicycle wheel. Right? I like to make people be bothered. Right? So I'm just going to make every single one of us mad, and I'm going to make the people that are listening on the podcast mad, and I'm going to make every Christian mad to this morning, and I'm going to say this. The answer is both. It's both. But there's a third element that is the glue that holds Peter and his confession together, and it's Christ himself. And there's a reason why I think it is all three, because Scripture tells us so, and it's all in the language. In the Greek, and we're going to start right here with Peter himself. In the Greek, the name Peter is a wordplay that we don't get, we don't grasp via English. Peter, in the Greek, is the word Petros. Petros, os, keep that in mind. Whereas rock is the word Petra, not the 70s Christian music band Petra, right? who took their name intentionally from the Greek word rock, right? because they rocked. Right? Petros is Peter, Petra is rock. And with that one little piece of Greek information, you can start to understand why this verse has been a minefield throughout Christian history. The idea that the rock refers to Peter's confession has been argued heavily and repeatedly since the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. Because Peter, as the rock himself, is an essential element to our Roman Catholic friends' theology regarding the papacy, regarding the office of the Pope. Right? Now, we rightly deny that theology as Protestants, because we protest that part. But that theology has held for them, since Peter in this verse, this is their proof text, all the way down now to Pope Francis. However, let me continue to make you angry. One Protestant commentator notes this, and I love this quote. He says, just because of the Roman Catholic theology, this is an inadequate reason for denying the most obvious and the most straightforward interpretation of the words of Christ. So here's why. This is not a parable. This is a very intentional point to keep in mind. This scene right here is not a parable. Meaning, as most parables are, they are meant to be cryptic only for those who understand, but not for the larger crowds. That's not what's happening here. This is a direct conversation between rabbi and students, between master and pupils, but more so between Christ and his disciples. Another Protestant commentator writes here, he says this, if it were not for Protestant reactions against the extremes of Roman Catholic interpretation, it is doubtful 
whether many would have taken Rock to be anything other than Peter himself. So, backing up now. I think Jesus is referring directly to Peter, and I think he is simultaneously, simultaneously referring to his confession. It's both at the same time. So as it relates to Peter directly, there's a couple of things going on here. First, there is a new name going on here. We see this very explicitly in the Gospel of John chapter 2, when Jesus and Simon meet for the first time. But here in Matthew, we see it that Jesus first refers to, to Simon, to him as Simon. He says it in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then now, here in verse 18, he finally refers to him as Peter. So what Jesus is doing is, once again, he's mirroring the authority of Yahweh, who renames Abram to Abraham and Jacob to Israel. Jesus is again claiming his divine nature and his divine personhood. But there's a second reason why I think it's related directly to Peter and not just his confession, because Peter himself tells us as much in his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he stresses that he, along with every believer, are living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices to God through Christ. Peter understands his position as a rock of the foundation for the church. But as it relates to his confession, which we are a lot more familiar with, let's consider the exact language that Jesus uses here. Again, in the Greek, he says this, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church, I will build my ecclesia. That's the word for assembly or church in Greek. And by using these two words, what Jesus is doing is he is creating an intentional distinction between Peter and the rock upon which the church will be built. And while this rock is distinct from Peter, notice it is still connected to Peter. So what the New Testament shows us is that Peter, then, is the first to make the supernatural confession among the twelve. And his prominence will continue throughout the earliest years of the church as he takes on a leadership role among the rest of the apostles for a time. Peter may not be the foundation for the church, but he is part of the foundation for the church. One of our favorite fathers, Theodore of Mopsuestia, writes this. He says, This is not the property of Peter alone, but it came about on behalf of every human being. And having said that his confession is a rock, Jesus states that upon this rock I will build my church, meaning Jesus will build his church upon this same confession and faith. It was Peter's confession that was going to become the common property of every believer. By bestowing upon Simon the name Petros, Jesus shows that this is for the common good of the whole church, since the common element of the confession of Jesus as the Christ first came from Peter himself. So Jesus will build his church upon Peter, but he will also build it upon Peter's confession, which is the confession of every single one of the disciples, every single believer, including you and me, from the time of Christ until now, that call upon the name of the Lord. But then there's that third element that serves as the glue, right, that holds Pet Petros and Petra together, and that is the rock of Christ himself. Let's just run the gambit real quick of Scripture. In Psalm 118, verse 22, 
the psalmist proclaims there, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Citing this very psalm in just a few chapters from now in Matthew 21, Jesus will point to himself as that cornerstone of the church. Peter, again, would use this same psalm as he stands before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, stating this Jesus is the stone that you rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul would write that we are all citizens of the kingdom, and God has built his household upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul identifies Jesus as the church's sole foundation. Then, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he would reach all the way back into the Exodus account. When the Israelites drink from the rock in the wilderness. And he says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ himself. Jesus is the rock from which we drink. He is the foundation of the church, and he is the cornerstone of that same foundation. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built upon Peter, the apostles, the prophets, you and me, and Peter's supernatural confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, quickly then, with that comprehension, it's Peter, it's his confession, and it's Christ himself. Let's take all three and apply them to these two promises that Jesus gives then to Peter and by Peter, the rest of us as the church. So he says here, the first promise he gives us, he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he says, he tells us here directly, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The term gates suggests a fortified city, right? Now most of us might have a gate to our backyard or something, but... We don't live in cities now that are surrounded by a wall with gates. Gates are designed for one purpose, and that's to keep things out. Right Now, some of us have dogs, right? We have dogs. I know Connor and Angela have dogs. So we did put up a fence to keep our dogs in because we don't want them wandering the neighborhood. But more so, especially at, at our property, maybe you guys had this problem too, we had a lot of neighborhood dogs that would get off of their leashes and end up in our yard tearing up my yard, which I don't like, so I want to keep dogs out, right? But gates are designed to keep things out, and the thing that they are designed primarily to keep out is an enemy. They're designed to keep out danger. They're designed to keep out death, and we see this imagery vividly in Psalm 24, which we proclaim as a resurrection psalm. It is a resurrection psalm. In verses 7 through 10, there are gates that are commanded to be opened so that the king of glory may enter. We have a song at Christ's community that we sing based on this psalm, and we sang it this past Friday night at our music night. But there are two sets of gates in those final four verses of that song. Some are the gates of heaven, but the other are the gates to the domain of hell, or the domain of Hades, or better understood, the domain of death. And in verses 7 and 8, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death are commanded to be opened so that the king of glory may enter into them. And this is the king of glory who is strong and mighty in battle. The gates of hell are commanded to be opened for a conquering king. And then in verses 9 and 10 when the psalm ends, the gates are proclaimed to be opened 
Open the gate so that the king of glory may come in. This is the Lord of hosts entering into his rest. So by his death and his resurrection, Christ shatters the gates. He shatters the domain. He shatters and conquers the stronghold of hell, placing it both under his own authority, but also the authority of his church. Martin Luther has this wonderful quote, and he proclaims, he says, speaking to death, he says, world, death, devil, hell, get away and leave me in peace. I love Martin Luther. He goes on, he says, you have no hold on me, death, you have no hold on me, hell. If you will not let me live, then I will die, but you won't succeed even in that. If you chop off my head, it won't harm me. I have a God who will give me a new one. Christian death has no hold on you. And so here, Jesus promises us as his church, as his bride, as his ecclesia, built upon himself, built upon the apostles, built upon the prophets, he promises us that the gates of hell, the gates of death, will not thwart his church's progress. His church will advance, and she will prevail through her supernatural confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then finally, that second promise is that the church now has the authority over the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and to loose on earth. Listen again, that's, that's not a paraphrase. That's exactly what Jesus says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here in about two weeks, we will be in Matthew chapter 18 to a parallel passage to this that uses that exact phrase again. Here in this passage, the word you is singular, so he is still talking to Peter, but Jesus expands that in Matthew 18 in the church discipline passage to the rest of the church. So we will go into more detail then, but let me explain it here. So like keys, keys like gates have one particular purpose. They lock doors and they unlock doors. That's what keys are for. Keys permit entrance or they prevent entrance. To bind or to loose has the same ultimate purpose. Keys also symbolize access to power. Right? If I gave you my car keys, you would then have power over my car. And because I have too many keys on my key ring, you would have power over my house and my parents' house and Sharon's car and Sharon's parents' house, and in the church, you would have so many keys you wouldn't know what to do with. You'd have to fumble through them because a lot of them look the same. You would even have power over my grandfather's home that we sold three years ago, right? Because I doubt those people have changed the logs. I hope they have, but if they haven't, if they're listening, guys, you need to change your logs. But keys grant us access and power. So to possess the keys of the kingdom of heaven means considerable authority. To control the keys to the kingdom of heaven is to have the authority to open its doors or to close them. This is a very heavy responsibility that Jesus gives to his bride. With these keys come the authority of guarding the gates of the kingdom of heaven as well as the power to permit or exclude entry into the kingdom. So when Peter would later proclaim, after Jesus' resurrection, he would proclaim him on Pentecost, or proclaim him in Acts chapter 4, he would proclaim Jesus as the Christ. 
Peter is exercising his use of the keys of the kingdom as he speaks. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning about opening our storehouses. This is the exact same thing. This is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. When Peter proclaims the gospel, he restates and announces what God has already decided. God has not changed his mind. The gospel is set and it is sure. If anyone repents and trusts in Jesus, his sins are forgiven and the doors to the kingdom of heaven are opened and they enter in. But if they reject Jesus, the door to the kingdom of heaven is locked and they are locked out. So likewise, we permit entrance into the kingdom by proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we exclude entrance into the kingdom by withholding that truth from the world. So here's another question to ask. Not only who is Jesus to you this morning, but how are we managing the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And so the point here to grasp is this. Whatever is bound up, whatever is loosed out, is done by the church with heavenly authority as its leverage. As the church takes the teaching of Christ, as the church lives and is in obedience to those teachings in the world, both in terms of opening the doors and opening the truths of the kingdom, it does so with the authority and the power of God behind it. And until his return, Jesus has entrusted us with the keys to his kingdom. As we preach the gospel, as we make disciples, we open the door to believers and we close it to those who reject. This is a very heavy responsibility that we bear as the bride of Christ. And we should not bear it lightly. So again, how are we managing the responsibility of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? So again, let's ask this question. Who is Jesus? He is the rock upon which the church is built. His authority is the leverage behind the proclamation of the gospel. He is the king who conquers the domain of the enemy. And he is the assurance of your supernatural confession of him as Lord. And he has given you, Christian, church, the responsibility to manage access to his kingdom. The powers and the gates of hell and death will not thwart you. So as we come to the table and we say, thank you, Christ, for what you have done, look to him and proclaim, just like the apostles before you and every believer from then until now, you, Lord Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.